for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's Sermon Audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, the Amish have an interesting tradition called a Ramspringa. This is a word that means to hop around or jump around or run around. If uh, you don't know much about the Amish, you, you, you know that they're a Christian group and they're kind of marked by pulling away from the world, right? Like some of the pictures you might have of the Amish are, are uh, examples of them pulling away from especially technology and culture from the world. And they live these kind of what to us seems like very unique lives. So some of the pictures you might have of them are a really rural lifestyle. Uh, you might picture them, you know, riding in a, in a horse-drawn buggy uh, down a highway. And, and that's just how the, the Amish uh, are, are working out really their Christianity. Uh, much of uh, their clothes uh, are handmade. Uh, they, they live a, a, a rural kind of farming lifestyle. They're, they're, the way they structure their spirituality is really marked by simplicity and order and humility. Uh, they've made this clear tradition of pulling away from the world. And there's this clear demarcation in Amish spirituality of where you're in or you're out. And so when you're in, you're living this Amish lifestyle, you've embraced this tradition, and you're distinct from the world. And when you're out, you're out. Now, of course, some people can come from the outside and become Amish. But of course, the question is, what about Amish children? Do they automatically become part of the Amish community? The answer is no. What they do is, is, and it's different you know, by different communities, but somewhere between the ages of about 15 to 20, Amish children go on this Ramspringa, and, and it's where they send them out of the Amish community, and they want them to experience the world. And those children on their own need to decide, are we going to live uh, within the Amish covenant? And some of them literally will kind of go out for a couple of days and like, nah, I'm back, you know, and, and they come back on their own accord. Some of them might wander for a couple of years and then come back. Now, if you're imagining, okay, what are they doing? You're probably right, whatever you're imagining, okay? Now, they, they go out and they learn how to drive a car and they experience the internet, they also experience sinful things like, you know, uh, getting drunk and, and sometimes doing drugs or, or, or participating in, in uh, uh, se- uh, sinful sexual activities. And all that can go on during the Ram Springa. Now, before I finish my little account, I want to be really clear on something. Parents, children alike, I don't think this is a good idea, okay? So some of the kids, you're bummed hearing that. You're thinking, hey, this sounds great. I think it's a terrible idea. Parents, I got your back, okay? When, when your kid comes, you know, over lunch today and makes, you know, advocates for the Rom Springa, tell them, Pastor Mike has said it's a terrible idea. I don't think it's a good idea because I don't think sin is something to be explored. I think it's something to be avoided. Wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes, not making them ourselves. However, what's interesting to me about the Rom Springa is the vast majority of those children come back to the Amish community. Do you want to know Why? It's because Jesus is better. They go out and get taste of the world, and they realize the taste of Jesus that they had before, that is way better than anything the world has to offer. They might doubt for a short season. They might believe the world is better for a moment. They might believe for a moment that they can find better love or better joy or better forgiveness in the world. 
However, in the end, as all faithful Christians know, they, they know that Jesus is all we need all the time. Listen, if you poll the average uh, Christian, they, they would say that, listen, I believe Jesus is better, okay? But the reason why Hebrews 7 verses 20 to 25 is so important is because we need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. We need to be reminded that Jesus is all we need all the time. In fact, some of us, even today, might be uh, weak and doubting today, and we maybe need to be convinced of it again. This is why this passage is here, because there's seasons when Christians doubt, and there's seasons when Christians forget, and we need to be reminded again, and we need to be convinced again that Jesus is all we need all the time. If, if you're new with us, we've been in this series uh, through the book of Hebrews, and we've just done kind of a deep dive into Hebrews, and the reason being is, is there's a lot of depth in Hebrews. Hebrews is, is written for a purpose, and the purpose of writing the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote it, but the reason why that person wrote Hebrews is because people were falling away from the faith. Now, if you know people who've fallen away from the faith today, just know that it has always happened. People have always been falling away from the faith. It was happening even uh, during the first generation of the church. People were uh, deconstructing their faith. They were abandoning the faith. And so Hebrews is written to that problem. And as we've seen over these many weeks, the solution to that problem is that Jesus is better. Whatever they think is better that is tempting them away the answer to Hebrews, the, the solution found in Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And, and listen, the Jesus that we find in Hebrews is not this kind of plastic or, or childish Hebrews. There's some real weight and some, some depth to this Jesus in Hebrews. And so Hebrews is a really deep dive into who Jesus is. And we're going to do a deep dive today because that's what he does over and over again because he wants us to see Jesus as glorious. He wants to say, listen, whatever is tempting you away, Jesus is better than that. But, but Jesus is not this caricature that maybe you have of him. He is way more glorious. There's way more complexity and depth to him. The, the Jesus that I'm talking about, the Jesus that is better, is more glorious than what we can imagine. Chapter 7 has been this look at Jesus' priestly ministry. Jesus is a better priest, even than the Old Testament priests. They were good, but Jesus is better. And, and remaining with this context of Jesus being a better priest, we're going to see that because of Jesus' oath, permanence, and person, he's a, guarantee, he's a guarantor of a better covenant, he saves to the uttermost, and, and his sacrifice is once for all. So let's look at verses 20 to 22, and we're going to see that Jesus' oath guarantees a better covenant. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 20 opens this section about speaking about an oath. An oath is just a, a solemn promise. 
The point here is that, that Jesus had a better oath than, than the Levitical priesthood. His oath was better. That's kind of easy because they didn't even have an oath, okay? They didn't have an oath. Jesus has an oath. That's why he's better. So his priesthood is backed by this oath. Now, when you think oath, think promise or think word of God. There's a promise behind Jesus's priesthood. There's a word of God behind Jesus's priesthood. God has made these promises that has propped up Jesus's priesthood. His priesthood is backed by the word of God, by the promise of God, or by the oath of God. Now, the author then provides an example of this oath or this promise. And, and he goes back to, uh, like he's done previously, he goes back to Psalm 110, verse 4, and, and he outlines this promise that Jesus will, has a priesthood that will be forever. And the emphasis is on forever. Jesus is a priest forever. Therefore, he's categorically different than the Old Testament priests. They didn't have an oath. They didn't have this promise behind them, and they weren't forever. So his promise is that uh, Jesus' priesthood will be final, eternal, and unchangeable. So his priesthood is forever. God has promised to be uh, true, and and Jesus' priestly ministry will never end. Okay, so what? Why is that important? Well, the reason is, is in, in verse 22, that Jesus is a guarantee, uh, guarantees a better covenant. He says in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the covenant in this better covenant, that's the point. That's the end of this truth. That's why God has made this promise about Jesus and his eternal priesthood is because he's promising or he's guaranteeing this better covenant. Now, last week, we spent some time talking about these different covenants. And essentially, we said, listen, you can understand the Bible as these series of covenants or these contracts or these commitments that God makes with humanity. And all these covenants are are rooted in the love that God has for his people. So God loves his people enough to reach down and make this covenant uh, commitment with them. And he loves them this much uh, to establish them. And he does it different ways. So even going back to the Garden of Eden, if you remember, in the garden, they had these gracious promises that after they fell, that God would ultimately defeat sin and death from Genesis 3.15. You remember the image of I'll uh, stomp on the head of the snake? He'll bruise my heel maybe, but I'm going to crush his head. That's this promise or this this prophecy, this establishment of a covenant that that God is going to bring salvation to his people. Fast forward to Genesis 12, and and he makes this covenant promise to Abraham where he graciously promises him land, seed, and blessing. We saw last week Jeremiah 31 where God makes this this covenant that he he lovingly and graciously promises to be uh, that that, uh, his law would be in our hearts. And we talked about that, listen, that's, that's referring to something in the New Testament. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. So all these covenant promises are glorious, gloriously good, but and they're all made through this hope. But Jesus is saying here that he has something better. He has these promises that are supporting his priesthood. And because he's an eternal priest, then it guarantees all these covenant promises. I've referenced some Old Testament ones, but let me look at some New Testament ones, some things that are guaranteed because of Jesus' priesthood. Let me give you two real quick. Ephesians 2.5 says that even though we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. That's a promise that we have. That's a guarantee that we have because Jesus is our priest. Let me give you one more. Romans 1.16 makes the promise uh, that the good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Isn't that a better covenant? 
If you believe in what Christ has done on the cross, then you now have the power of God of salvation. This is your covenant promise. He has the power to save. He has the power to save anyone, and anyone who believes in him will be saved. Isn't that a better covenant? Are you with me? That's a better covenant than what they had in the Old Testament. And we have that because of Jesus. But, but really, I think maybe the, even the better news, if you will, of these first few verses is that Jesus says that he guarantees those things. Those are truths that we have, but we're also guaranteed those things. Because Jesus is our priest, then we are guaranteed these promises. Uh, Paul says it in Ephesians 1. He says that we are sealed that we're guaranteed an inheritance. And that inheritance is an inheritance of glory. So Jesus' oath guarantees a better covenant, meaning that Jesus is all that we need. I told you we're going deep into this. There's a lot in Hebrews, and we're just started. Your second point. The second point is, is that Jesus' permanence enables salvation to the uttermost. Jesus' permanence uh, enables salvation, but salvation to the uttermost. Look at verse 23. For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So verse 23 continues this comparison with Jesus and the Old Testament priest. And it highlights how death limited their ministry. The reason there were so many uh, priests is, is that because they kept dying, okay? That's why they continued to have priest after priest after priest. And in fact, God created an entire tribe of them because he needed so many more. And then they would live their life and then they would die. But then there were more sins and so you raise up another priest. And it, it was this perpetual thing that happened. They kept dying. But then we see in verse 24 how Jesus is better. You see, unlike the Old Testament priest, his ministry is permanent. And do you know why it's permanent? Because death does not defeat Jesus. When Jesus died, what, did, what happened three days later? He just rose again. Jesus' priesthood then is permanent. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't die and stay dead. Jesus' priestly ministry, like his person, extends forever. Jesus has this permanent uh, priesthood. He has this perpetual priestly ministry, and it's because death cannot stop him. As a result, we read in verse 25 that Jesus' permanent person and Jesus' perpetual ministry enables him to save to the uttermost is the word that he uses here. This is a great word. Some of your translations might say complete or might say forever. I think those are fine. So, so forever has the idea like of length of time. So his salvation uh, is, is, uh, is forever, meaning this length of time. But also, it's complete. Both of those words are fine here. I actually think uh, uttermost is great because it kind of brings the totality of completeness as well as the length of time forever. It, it brings those things together. And what he's saying here is that Jesus totally saves forever. What good news. Jesus totally saves let me read Romans 6, 1 to 4 to you. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still limit it, live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. One of the really glorious things or aspects of your salvation is that you're united with Christ. This means that you die with him. And if you die with him, it means you can then be resurrected with him. What that means is, as it says there in, in, Ro- in Romans 6, that you now walk in newness of life. You do all of that because your salvation is, is a total transformation. That's the gospel, that God changes everything. He transforms everything about you. You see, the gospel is supposed to touch your heart. It's supposed to touch your head. It's, it's supposed to touch your hands. It transforms all of that. It transforms how you think uh, and the thoughts that you have. It transforms then how you feel about things. And then it transforms your behaviors, how you live in the the rest of your life. That's total transformation. And it touches everything, right? If it totally transforms you, then it's going to transform all the relationships around you. Like think of it, you've moved from an enemy of God, not only to like this neutral status with him, you've moved from an enemy of God to be a beloved child of God, an adopted child of God. He totally transforms your relationship with him. And listen, if you're faithfully following uh, the Lord, you know that it transforms all the relationships around you. Work is better. Your marriage is better. Your friendships are better. It transforms all of it. It touches everything in the best of ways. But again, like we said, it's not just a complete transformation. It's a forever transformation. He, He saves totally forever. Jesus says that once we were, uh, once that we're, we're within the firm grasp of the Father, that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, John 10. Isn't that glorious? No one can snatch you out of his hand. His love is so strong that it just continues to cover your sin. You can't out his grace. He has, you, he has you in his loving grasp so strongly that nothing, even yourself, can pull you away from it. He says it this way in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Such tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, and you can add anything you want on that list. Nothing is gonna separate you from the love of Christ. This total salvation is forever. You're held secure within his love. However, consistent with the, with the charge of the entire book, this explanation, look again at verse 25. This is true for those who draw near to God through him. You see, these glorious gospel truths, they're, they're, meant, to, uh, they're meant to call you to draw near to him. You see, these truths about his sovereignty and about his grace, they're not excuses to fall away. They're incentives to draw near to him. Do you see that? When we talk about this glorious gospel, this glorious grace, this glorious sovereignty, this glorious love that he has for you, it's not meant to be an excuse to walk away. It's an incentive to draw near to him. Finally, the reason why we can both experience total salvation and do it forever and even draw near to him is because he makes intercession. You see it in that final verse? All of these glorious gospel truths are based upon Jesus' priestly interceding ministry. What this means is that he never stops pleading your case. He never stops pursuing your heart. He never stops convicting you and encouraging you and giving you eyes to see and comforting you and caring for you and persevering you. 
He never stops making intercessions. Brothers and sisters, he always lives to make intercession for you. If you're an ameninger, that's an amening moment right there. He never stops. He's always making intercession for you. Jesus' permanence enables him, uh, enables you to have salvation to the uttermost. And it's all based upon this priestly ministry. Friends, Jesus is all we need all the time. Well, let's look at this final section. Jesus' person enables his once-for-all sacrifice. Look at 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sins, and exalted from the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Friends, the grounding of all of our hope is in the person of Jesus. Jesus is all we need all the time. He enables all our gospel hopes. Jesus, is, uh, his person enables uh, his once for all sacrifice. He, he lists five things about Jesus' person in verse 26. He says that he's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separate from sinners, he's exalted above a, of the heavens. And all this means is that on the inside is holiness. That's what's on the inside of Jesus is holiness. His inner person is innocent of all sin. And what that means is, is that he never had a sinful inclination. Try that on for size. He never even desired it. He never had a sinful thought on the inside. Jesus was always righteous. Therefore, he then became this blameless, unstained, never tainted by evil sacrifice. He, he never did what was wrong. He always did what was right, right. Think about it this way. He dined with sinners which I think is actually a righteous thing to do, right? But he dined with sinners, but hear me, he did it in such a way that he was always separate and set apart, right? He, he was able to do both of those things and do both of those, those things perfectly. Uh, there, there was always something different about him. There was something distinctly beautiful about him. You see, connected to him, because of all these truths, Jesus enjoyed this unhindered access to the Father. He was exalted and he was glorious. Therefore, he was uniquely qualified to be the sacrifice for us. Therefore, the point is then found in verse 27. Because of his holiness, uh, he doesn't need to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice. What that means is, is no more blood needs to be shed. What that means is, is that no more temple rituals need to be performed. What that means is, is there doesn't need to be no, another day of atonement ceremonies. You see, Jesus' sacrifices was one and done. When he did it, all that stuff was done away with. None of that was needed. You see, he is so glorious that his sacrifice only had to be once because it covered all the sins of all of his people. The work was complete. Theologically, this means that his work was efficacious meaning that it was effective, it was successful in accomplishing its intended purpose. Jesus accomplished it all. What he set out to accomplish, he accomplished it. Therefore, in verse 28, it concludes the thought. It teaches us that the Old Testament priests were limited and weak, and thus the covenant that their priesthood was based upon was also limited and weak, but, but God gave us an oath. He gave us a better promise. He gave us something better than a human priest. What, is it, what does it say in there in the last verse? He gave us a divine son. 
He gave us something better than a priest. He gave us a son. So because of Jesus' oath, because of his permanence, and because of his person, he's a guarantee of a better covenant. He saves to the uttermost. His sacrifice is once for all. That's why no matter the temptation and no matter the trial, Jesus is all we need all the time. Amen? What what a glorious picture. Okay, what does this mean? What are are the takeaways for us? Let me me give you three. You see, our problem... um, our problem is that we don't always believe that Jesus is all we need all the time, right? We don't always believe that. There's times where we forget that. There's times where we lack faith and trust in him. And we can compromise our trust in such a way, and maybe this is you. This has been me certainly at times. There's times where I think, you know what? Yeah, I can have trust for Jesus as my ticket into heaven, but he doesn't really help me with my to-do list that's overwhelming me this morning. Like, like, Jesus is all we need all the time for all of that, right? You see, we don't always believe that, he's, that he has guaranteed us his love. We don't always trust that Jesus is all we need for joy. We, we don't always uh, live as if Jesus is all we need for forgiveness. L- let me give you maybe three takeaways here. You see, we can politely admit that Jesus' oath guarantees a better covenant, but then turn around and seek more satisfying love somewhere else. Maybe this looks different in different people's lives, but it's easy for us to believe the love of another boy or a girl or a spouse or a friend or a child is somehow better than the love of God, right? And and how do we know that? Well, we know that when when that love is taken away from us, then then what do we do? We plummet. Or when that love is there, boy, we're, we're flying high. But see, all those relationships, it's, it's just categorically a different type of unconditional love that, that God gives you, which means all those loves, it just can't bear the weight that only Jesus' love provides. No one is going to love you unconditionally like Jesus does. No, no one's going to accept you and be there with you at all times. Friends, if you are subtly seeking unconditional love in a person rather than Jesus, then hear the good news of Hebrews 7. This is offering you something better. You probably know the verse, but, it, but it's worth repeating. John three sixteen. For God so what? Loved. He loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, those covenant gospel promises of, of eternal life, it's based upon his love for you. He has this unconditional love for you that is guaranteed in this rich, deep theology of who Jesus is. His oath guarantees these loving commitments. Therefore, believe that Jesus is all you need all the time. Number two, we can also subtly seek joy in other things, forgetting that Jesus' permanence enables salvation to the uttermost. The world is always calling us to believe that happiness is found uh, everywhere and in everything from a, from a new car to, to vegging out on something silly on our phone, to toying with lustful thoughts. We, we can, uh, we can idolatrously idolatrous seek joy uh, in earthly pleasures and people that, that we can't, uh, and none of those things can bear the burden of the joy that we need, right? But like those things run out, they never fully satisfy, Right? You see, we can seek joy in all these things, but again, they can't bear the weight of our joy needs. They, they can't fully satisfy. Maybe they feel great for a moment, 
But you talk to us six months later and, and they've run dry. They're not filling our souls. Only Jesus can do that. That's the good news of Hebrews chapter 7. And he's offering this joy that is complete and forever. It's better. It's, it's not like a fleeting happiness that the world offers. This is something that is forever, and it can bear the weight of our need for joy. Believe that his joy is better. Believe it's complete. Believe that it's forever. Believe that Jesus is all you need all the time. Well, the third takeaway. For some of us, this might be more, I think, subtle than others, but, but we can even seek forgiveness uh, or, or to be made right with God through our own good works. However, we can never be good enough. You see, every day we're called to believe that Jesus' holiness enabled his once and for all sacrifice. And hear me, uh, he was good enough. Therefore, his sacrifice is how we're forgiven. That's especially true when we sin. That's especially true when we blow it. That's especially uh, glorious when we continue to struggle with sin. You are forgiven. You have a relationship with God, and that relationship is categorically different than every other relationship you have. It's not contractual in that way. Like, people at the office are nice with you when you're performing. People on, on, on your team are cheering you when you're performing. But, and maybe, and hopefully it's not that way in your marriage, but that can be that way in our marriages, can it? You see, our relationships can be these contractual things that, you know, when you're performing, when you're doing good works, when you're giving to it, then everybody's happy with you and accepts you. But when you don't live up to that standard, then it becomes a dark place. It's totally different with Jesus. Jesus is there for you when you fail. He knows you're not going to live up with it, uh, to the standard. He lived up to the standard for you. Jesus' person enables his once-for-all sacrifice. So believe that Jesus is all you need all the time. Believing Jesus is all you need all the time is the solution to the problem of falling away. Because isn't that better than seeking joy and love and forgiveness anywhere else? Isn't that better than anything that the world has to offer? The world loves deconstruction stories, and social media is filled with, uh, with things like hashtag ex-evangelical. All the sociological uh, data, as well as common sense, shows that the media is dominated by secular people who care ultimately about political things, okay? That's the American media. You get mad at me, but all, all the data supports what I just said, Okay. And so there's these incentives in the media uh, to, to care little about the claims of the Bible, to care little about what we're doing here. The average reporter in America doesn't even have categories for what's happening here, okay? And so when they see someone uh, fall away from the faith, that makes sense to them. They celebrate that. There's some incentives for them to celebrate that. Therefore, they have these incentives to hold these up. See, all these people are abandoning the faith. That's what the media is telling us. However, the reality is that people have always abandoned the faith. There's nothing new going on here when someone abandons the faith. That's why God gave us the book of Hebrews, but most don't abandon the faith. Some people might say that's happening all over the place. It's not happening all over the place. Most people don't abandon the faith. Now, what's really going on here, there's actually not less Christians in America today. You know what's really going on? There's a polarization that's happening. So, so the, the mushy middle is gone. So the nominal Christian is actually coming out to what they really were, an unconverted person, okay? 
And, and so things are just polarizing more, okay? So people who actually preach the gospel, those churches, those churches grow. More people come to those because the spirit is there and things are happening there. So there's this narrative out there that all these people are falling away. Well, uh, I would just say that it costs something to be a Christian. And, when, and then when it does cost something to be a Christian, many abandon the label. I think that's what's going on in America. But how should we respond when people abandon the faith? That's really what Hebrews is about. How, how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, let me, let me give you four thoughts on how to respond when people abandon the faith. Listen, of course, there's always trends, and there's like these uh, observable slippery slopes when someone abandons the faith. Well, they hold to this doctrine. Well, if they hold to that, then they're going to get to this, and then they're going to get to this, okay? There's, there's data that supports that. However, I think it's important for us to see people as individuals and take their experience case by case. We don't need to assume people's struggles. That, that's the first thing. Uh, on, on how we should respond to people when they're abandoned in the faith. The second thing is I also think it's important to listen and learn when pe- what people are saying. Listen, just because someone's abandoning the faith doesn't mean that what they have to say is not a valid criticism of imperfect people or imperfect churches. So, so I think we need to listen and learn. Number three, I also think we need to have compassion for those who are struggling with their faith, especially if they're struggling it as a result of some deep hurts. Listen, when, when someone has been abused I don't think it's crazy for them to ask that question, is God really good? Why was God, why, why was God not there? Like, why, why did God take me through this? Is God really good? We need to have compassion when people are there. And number four, I think we should also confidently engage false assumptions and incorrect ideas. The, tr- the truth is not every Bible-believing Christian is the caricature that the media makes you out to be. Listen, I challenge my high school students, just be different. Don't be the caricature. You see, the, most Christians I know, I, I don't even know what they're talking about in the media. That, that's not my experience in this church. And so don't be the caricature, especially, I think, with regards to politics. But further, Christianity has great arguments for the existence of God. Christianity has great arguments for why this book is true in the Word of God. Further, I think Christianity has very convi- uh, convincing ethical standards on uh, identity and sexuality. We have something better than the world has to offer. We, we have more convincing thoughts. I'll go so far to say, even though we have an imperfect history, I'll put church history up against, up against anybody. You, you want to compare the history of the church and, and if, was it beneficial to the world with the history of Marxism? Which one of those was, was better for human flourishing in the world? Do, do we want to compare it to secularism? Listen, if you want to toy with the ideas of secularism, look at the history and then compare it to all the hospitals that are all over this country that have the name Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist on them. Ultimately, I'm with the author of the book of Hebrews here that I think we simply need to make the case that Jesus is better. When someone's toying with falling away, engage the arguments. Listen to them. Have compassion for them. Do the work of understanding what they're doing. But at the end of the day, teach them how Jesus is better. Before I leave you for my sabbatical, let me make clear on what I know to be true. Jesus is better than politics. Jesus is better than a lot of money. Jesus is better than sex. Jesus is better than that person that you want to like you. It's better than them liking you back or accepting you. Jesus is better than worldly success. Jesus is better than being right. 
Jesus is better than having all your answers uh, uh, clearly understood. Jesus is better than having everything figured out. Jesus is better than accolades. Jesus is better than being famous. Jesus is better than good health. Believing Jesus is all we need all the time is the solution to falling away. He's better than all of those things. Because uh, isn't that better than seeking love, joy, and forgiveness anywhere else? Friends, most people left Jesus too. After a large group quit following him in John 6, he turned to his 12, and here's what he said. Do you want to go away as well? Peter, in a glorious, maybe this is Peter's finest moment, he gives a perfect answer. Peter says in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, nothing else matters. Because of Jesus' oath, because of his permanence, because of his purpose, or, or because of his person, he's a guarantor of a better covenant. He saves to the uttermost, and his sacrifice is once for all. That means he guarantees a better love. That, that, that means he saves to a better joy, and it means he sacrificed for a better forgiveness. So maybe you can make a logical argument for something. And maybe you can point out the imperfections of some Christian or some church, but at the end of the day, Jesus is all I need all the time. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Hebrews 7. And for some of us, this maybe weird look at Old Testament priests and what in the world does all this mean for today? But Lord, at the end of the day, we know that you never stop interceding for us. You never stop caring for us. You never stop loving us. This glorious covenant relationship that we have is just based upon this deep love, this glorious sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, we're here to confess as a people that you are all we need all the time. No matter the temptation from the world, no matter the trials, no matter the things pulling us away, you're better. You're better than all of us. And may we be a people then that draw near to you. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.